we're going to spend some time uh, working our way through these a few verses in the last part of this letter that Paul wrote to Thessalonica. For those of you that are new, this is something we've been covering for a while. And Paul had been there. He was only there for three weeks, three Sabbaths. But in the midst of that, was able to do a great deal of teaching and then got word back that they were doing well. That is the first letter that he wrote to the Thessalonians. This is the second letter. And the tone increases a little bit because some of the things he sort of warned them about in the first letter, he now comes down with a little more conviction in the second one. But if you want to summarize this chapter, it really is that people and us as believers, even in that day and today, should pray for the gospel to spread. Next week, I know that we have the head of Fellowship International Ministries. Uh, That would be Paul Baraka. I know he's here to watch the gift of Christmas. I thought I'd interview him a little bit because he has uh, some stories about what's been happening in Nigeria. And I might just mention we had, of course, a missionary here that went to Nigeria to set up a seminary. Uh, He passed on, but he wants to give you maybe some information. I thought you would like to hear about what's happening in missions worldwide. And it is missions this week. So we'll talk about the idea of spreading the gospel, but also protection from evil and also the most important part to stay faithful to Christ. Uh, The first uh, verse is the only one we'll look at first, and that is that we should pray that the gospel would spread. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And so it is interesting that one of the first things he talks about as he is finishing his letter is the prayer that the gospel would be spread quickly and it would be honored among those in Thessalonica. I have some visitors here that have been to India, and of course you talk about right now what is happening in terms of the outreach in India. If you look at the top ten countries that are the most likely to persecute believers, number one is North Korea, but number ten is India. So things have changed dramatically, and so we recognize most of those other countries are Muslim countries. So I hope that you would think about praying not only for the outreach to Christians in communist countries like North Korea or China, and also to pray for those Christians to reach out to these Muslim countries, of which there are three dozen, but also now to some of the Hindu countries, and India being one of those. Let's continue on, though, because he also then prayed about those who join with him in ministry. And I gave you some of these verses. As you're going through this next week, you might want to take this. This would be a great Bible study for you, or a quiet time, to just look at the places where he talked about praying for those who joined in ministry. Because we'll have a little bit of a theme on ministry next week. But notice also, prayer is not a passive thing. It's really a way in which we can participate in what God is doing around the world. Well, let's go on because verses 2 and 3, he continues that thought. Verse 2, And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And so now he's praying for protection not only from evil men, but also the evil one. The persecution that believers are facing right now around the world, even what we may face in this country, don't just come from flesh and blood, but they come from principalities and powers, and they come from the evil one. And I thought it was interesting to give you a couple of verses here, because first of all, can you imagine getting your call to ministry 
And then constantly the Holy Spirit is telling you, now this is not going to be a fun ministry because after all, you are going to be in prison quite a bit and you're going to face hardship quite a bit. That's your call to ministry. Not the kind we give out at seminary sometimes, but that is the case. And if you remember, when he gives this list of all the things that have happened to him in 2 Corinthians, he basically says, I've been in prison more than any other believer. I've been flogged more severely, even to the point of death. And I face more danger on all sides. And so he recognized when he is calling for them to pray uh, again to, for protection from evil men and the evil one, he was a participant of that. I found in the commentary something kind of interesting. If you go back to ver- uh, chapter 18 in the book of Acts, at the time when he was writing this lesser letter to the Thessalonians, to those that believer in Thessalonica, he and his associates were in Corinth at that time, and they were actually facing opposition there as well. Recognize that when he was in Philippi, he had been beaten and thrown in prison. Now here you're facing again some really unusual things happening. So as he's talking about this, this isn't theoretical. This is experiential for sure. What's so interesting is when he refers back at another time to his ministry in Philippi, and I've actually been able to bring a tour to Greece to look at that and to look at what might be the prison, although we can't be sure. And we think about uh, what maybe could have taken place. I thought it was interesting because he refers to the fact that he was really thankful for the fact that when he was indeed in prison, that that gave him an opportunity to reach people with the gospel, which in this case was the imperial guard. What's the likelihood that Paul could have actually led that guard to the Lord unless he had gone through that? Sometimes when we're in difficult circumstances, you know, whether it's a filing for unemployment or whether it's um, interacting with something or in a hospital or talking to a nurse or a doctor, we say, God, why did you put me here? I thought you loved me. And you see that that sometimes is an opportunity for ministry. And Paul uses that as an example because he also points out that because of what he was able to endure in that prison, the other disciples hearing that had greater boldness, confidence, and would preach the gospel without fear. Pretty amazing. Here he also distinguishes between wicked and evil men and the evil one, a phrase used oftentimes to describe Satan. And he's praying for the deliverance and protection from both of those individuals. And one of the other things I saw in a commentary is that it might answer a question that sometimes we get here about translations. And that is that if you read NIV, I know we tend to use the ESV, English Standard Version, but if you knew the New International Version, if you're reading along, all of a sudden you come to the Lord's Prayer and you go, that's not how we used to say it in church. Because we always hear, deliver us from evil. But if you look at NIV, it actually says, deliver us from what? The evil one. What? Well, it turns out if you actually go back to the Greek, then, again, can I turn this into a seminary class just for a second? Um, if indeed you put the definite article, that is the, before a word like evil, it turns it from being an adjective to a noun. And what little I learned in English class in high school before I flunked table of contents, um, I, that's one of the things that we begin to recognize. I'm just kidding. But, you know, again, this is the idea that evil was the evil one. 
And so I really had never thought about that because I think almost all of us grew up in the church where when we said the Lord's Prayer, we said deliver us from what? Evil. And yet technically, at least NIV has it deliver us from the evil one. Now, you might be thinking I'm making a distinction without a difference, but, you know, because we recognize all evil comes from Satan. But I thought it was an interesting little side note. And, okay, let's get back out of the Greek Testament there. But just to sit you thinking about how that uh, might also be explained in this particular passage. Well, then verses four and five. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. And so here the focus here is on the fact that we should be praying for our Christian friends and family to stay faithful. That's certainly a prayer that we should have here in the examined class. But here you see again that he had real confidence in the fact that even after just three weeks, after three Sabbaths of that initial contact He was really very confident that they would continue on in the faith and that we even have steadfastness. Now, some of the commentaries talk about this idea of it being a wish prayer. When you say wish, well, I wish, but you don't have that. But this is more of a wish with confidence, a belief that indeed that is the case. Because the apostles really had the confidence that those in Thessalonica we're really able to be able to take this teaching, be faithful to it, and follow those commands. And more importantly, still, he wanted to pray for them because even though he had that confidence, just because you have confidence doesn't mean you should pray for someone. And I put up there, you know, no matter how spiritually mature we are, let's face it, we have a fair amount of spiritual maturity in the examine class. We have certainly age-wise, we'll talk about that later, won't we, (laughs) how old some people are getting in this class. But more importantly, we also, in addition to the chronological age, also I think we have also spiritual age. But does that mean we don't need prayer anymore? No, maybe more than ever, you know, to persevere. So again, as we face new temptations, new challenges, new struggles, we recognize some of the old ones return, but also we face even greater challenges as well. And then he uses this word steadfastness. Okay, I'm going to turn it into a Greek class just for a minute again. And that is really that Greek word steadfastness is really made up of two words. Meno, which is the idea of remain or abide. Remember when Jesus talks about if you will abide in me uh, in John 15. So there's that idea of abide. And meno is then put with hypo, which means under. So abide under, or in other words, to abide under, I think the implication is pressure. You know, it's real easy to abide in Christ when everything's going well, right? You know, you just uh, have a prayer life that says, Lord, it's been a great day. Thank you for all the blessings you've got. Uh, maybe there's a sin there somewhere. I ask your forgiveness. You know, I mean, it's really, it's another one. You're down on your knees saying, Lord, what is going on? You know, we're facing pressure, we're facing stress, we're facing persecution. And that's the idea of being steadfast, pressure under, abiding in the midst of pressure. And really the idea that we should, what, persevere to the end. And I put in Matthew 24, because, matter of fact, we were just talking about that uh, before we came up here, about uh, what Matthew 24 talks about in terms of this judgment that Jesus is talking about in the future, in terms of second coming. So, let's continue on, because now he has a problem. If you remember 1 Thessalonians, he warned them that you aren't supposed to be idle. You are actually supposed to work. 
And now he comes back and really hits it pretty hard, verses 6 and following. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we did not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy buddies. Not such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. If you want to get an example of the Protestant work ethic, here it is. Because he taught them that they should earn their keep while he was with them. And he says that some of them have become idle and really even kind of coins the term, which I'll come back to in just a minute, busybodies. The only time that shows up, by the way, in the New Testament, because if you think about it, first Thessalonians was really a letter of encouragement and thanksgiving. And he's just really making the mention that you all should be working. Now, apparently, he's gotten the message that uh, that first didn't really stick. There are some pretty idle individuals that are not working. Um, as I sometimes say on radio, if you pay people not to work, guess what? People don't work. You know, but if you think you're not supposed to work, people don't work, right? And for somehow, and I'm going to talk about some of the theories as to why there were just a lot of people just kind of sitting around in Thessalonica. And so now you can see the tone has gone from encouragement and thanksgiving more to correction and rebuke. Um, some theories are the case. If you want to have a good conversation in a seminary class, just simply say, why is it did Paul write this particular chapter in Second Thessalonians? Some people will tell you they believe that it was due to their false belief about the second coming. As I mentioned last time, it's possible that they had been believing this false teaching, even a, possibly a false letter that had come out that said the second coming has happened and now you're in the midst of the tribulation. And so they're saying, well, the rapture took place and we're still here. And so some think that maybe why work uh, and do anything if, um, after all, we're just going to have to endure this tribulation for a few years and then we're going to have the kingdom of heaven come to earth. So maybe it was that. It could be, some other people think, that it could be that maybe they got so spiritual that they weren't necessarily thinking physical. You've heard the old phrase, they were so heavenly minded, they were no earthly good. Maybe they started to think, you know, uh, we're doing spiritual things. And I've run into some people that sort of say, I'm very spiritual, so I don't worry about making money. Well, and some, somewhere along the line, you've got to meet some of the physical needs, right? And so maybe that was the case. Or they may have just justified it by simply saying that, you know, because I'm in a position of authority, pastor, deacon, whatever, um, church leader, well, everybody else should provide for my needs, which is not unbiblical, but Paul said, that's not what we did, because look at what Paul did when he got there. He and his workers, when they would show up in Philippi or in Berea or in Corinth or in this case in Thessalonica, they would actually do 
secular jobs. They could have lived on donations, as he points out, and even mentions that in 2 Corinthians, but they intentionally decided that as an example to this new and fledgling church, uh, that they would instead labor night and day uh, and not be a burden to anyone. So what did they do? As best as we can determine, they would show up in town, they would find a space at the marketplace that they could rent. Every one of these towns had an agora where discussions would take place, and they had a marketplace. And if you go to Philippi, especially if you go to Corinth, you can see where the marketplace is, and they would actually get a space. And they would then actually set up shop, and they would make tents. They had canvas that they had been able to purchase. They would make tents, and there was always a need for tents. Because after all, many individuals had to live in tents. They couldn't live in nice structures, and tents would uh, rip, they'd fall apart. Sometimes if the wind came, they'd fly away, whatever. So there was always a market for making tents, and so that's how he did it. And they worked on their trade, but it also gave them a ministry, because even though he may not have been in the synagogue that day teaching, um, anybody coming and buying a tent... Great witnessing opportunity. So that was what they did in order to support them. And so now we come back to what was happening there, because Paul was basically saying, wait a minute. If you can provide for yourself, you should provide for yourself. Now, it is true that in the early church and really throughout Christendom, probably the best examples of compassionate outreach have come from churches and from Christians. But even in the early church, you had the uh, focus on trying to reach out to the widows and the disabled, the orphans and the poor. And First Timothy 5 is a letter that Paul writes to Timothy talking about what that church should do as an outreach. And, of course, we have some great outreaches even here at Prestonwood. And a very good book that came out years ago by a professor at um, Baylor University uh, actually talks about the triumph of Christianity, in which he argues that really the reason Christianity exploded through the ancient world is because this idea of compassion and outreach was something that people had never seen before. They believed that they had a responsibility, as taught by Jesus, to go into the prisons, to minister to the poor. This was not something that the Greeks and the Romans really believed in, certainly not the Etruscans, the Carthaginians, the Phoenicians, the Egyptians. And so that was the case. So working for yourself had a Christian value, but you also should be able to support yourself and maybe have enough that you could even help support the poor. But So again, the argument is, if anyone cannot work, they cannot eat. No, that's not what he said. If they will not work, but they have the ability to do so, then they should not eat. And that was the idea. Then he uses this word busybody. It's a play on words, really, because it's the only place where you actually see this word, in which he talks about you're busy at work, but you're an idle busybody. Today we use the word busybody, but that might have been the first time anybody had ever heard the phrase. And he uses it there to make a point, because ultimately it comes from combining work with the idea of all around. And so the idea is to work all around, or basically to get in everybody's business. And we've ran into some busybodies. And if you haven't, I'm sure I'm 
my wife can tell you some, I can tell you some busybodies we run into it. Other churches, not this one, uh, which have indeed done that and um, seem to know everybody's gossip, but really never get the work done. And so this is what he's talking about there and actually coined the term that we use today. We talk about people that are busybodies. But let's finish off here now, uh, the last couple of verses. Verse 13. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. Paul has a different kind of philosophy here. First of all, he talks about the fact that we should not grow weary. Well, that's the same Greek word that you see in do not grow weary in doing good. And we see that in Galatians 6. And he, I think, is illustrating something I think we all know. If you've been a Christian a long time, Christianity and living the Christian life can be pretty exhausting sometimes. So let's acknowledge that. It's a wonderful, it's an abundant life, it's worth it, but it's something you have to endure. And it can be tough to feel as though you're the only one doing good sometimes in your business, in your community, maybe even in your family. And it can really wear you down. And I understand that. And it's interesting, I thought I might digress for just a minute to a passage. I remember one of our pastors at Northwest Bible Church preached on years ago on Psalm 73, in which the psalm writer Asaph was talking about how hard it is sometimes when you're doing good to see evil people sometimes prospering. I'm the one who's honest in the company. I'm the one that follows all the rules. I'm the one that does everything right. And yet, who gets the corner office? It's the guy that lies and cheats and seems to always get away with that. And I thought it was interesting that in Psalm 73, that's not a new phenomenon. Because here, you start thinking, what's the point? I mean, it's hard to remember kind of the long-term benefits of doing right. And Asaph even said that he felt like his feet almost slipped. He almost gave up, uh, if you will, in following this time the Old Testament God, Yahweh, until he went into the sanctuary of the temple. And then I discerned their end, and he wrote. And so there is a sense in which sometimes here we can understand that when people aren't doing the right thing, it's easy for us to be exhausted, to grow weary in doing good, to be discouraged by injustice, But sometimes we still have to remind ourselves that we should persevere in doing good. And um, Pastor Graham today quoted from Hebrews. Hebrews 10 talks about how the book of Hebrews says that this church, this community of believers, should spur one another on to love and good works. And so that is something that why, and Pastor Graham made it real clear, it's time for everybody to come back to church. I was going to kick out of that. He's telling the people in church it's always time to come back to church. Okay, but, you know, we need to maybe do a mailing or something to the people that are still not in church. Um, but again, he, instead, though, when he's talking about the idle believer, he has a different kind of philosophy. The person who's idle or a busybody, we're to warn them. Um, we're not to hang out with them. But that's different, very different than what Paul says if you go back to 1 Corinthians, in which there you are dealing with an individual's sexual sin where you wanted to really excommunicate them. So it's interesting here, he's telling the Thessalonians to distance themselves from somebody who's idle. 
Don't provide him for anything or her with anything. Uh, but you're not kicking them out of the church community. We're not kicking them out of church. Whereas with a sexual sin, that is something that causes that. But at the same time, we should provide correction. And if you want to put down a key verse, of course, in Proverbs, iron sharpening iron. And even the idea of rebuke and correction and reproof, which we see in Second Corinthians 3.16, of course, in the issue of the scriptures. Well, finally, we have these last few verses in the benediction. And here Paul says, Now may the Lord of peace himself give you peace at all times, in every way. The Lord be with you. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. This is the sign of genuineness in every letter of mine. It is the way I write. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. And so the emphasis here is, as he finishes off here, he signs the letter with his own hand. Perhaps because there had been a false letter spread around by saying this was from Paul, that said that we're already in the midst of the tribulation. But nevertheless, he wanted to make sure that they could see that even though he didn't write the entire letter, he probably had somebody to actually, he dictated it to and wrote it out. But then at the end, he takes up a pen, writes it so that they would know it was him. And then, of course, he talks about this idea of grace and peace. And that brings us to something very important, because all through the writings in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament, we see this concept of shalom. And shalom shows up many times. Uh, We can only find peace in him. Only he can bring us peace in the midst of difficult circumstances. Only his peace is supernatural, unexplainable. And as Paul says, as he writes to the church in Philippi, beyond comprehension. We've all seen individuals that in the midst of it, a terrible a medical diagnosis, uh, persecution, difficulties, uh, losing their job, uh, problems with their kids, whatever it is, and in the midst of that, still show that peace, which really passes all comprehension. I think that's something that in this 21st century world that we live in is probably going to cause more individuals to say, okay, I want to know what you've got. Because everybody's stressed out. The level of anxiety and depression is just going off the charts these days that we talk about so often on radio. You in the midst have this shalom, this peace. Where does that come from? What a great opportunity to share the gospel. And so that is the case. And so again, he talks about the fact that God can give us peace at all times in every way because he is what? He's the Lord of peace and the source of peace. So that kind of finishes off the two um, letters of Paul to the Thessalonians. And uh, we'll have a little bit of a break before we once again re-engage with the church um, as they give us a new series. I suspect most of the other classes are way behind, so they're going to have to use the next two weeks to try to even come close to catching up. Uh, But that gives us a chance to next week talk a little bit about this idea of Advent. Pastor Graham mentioned about that, and I thought I'd give you just a little bit of history about that in terms of the history. What does Advent mean? Some of you may have come from a liturgical church. There's a really good book that came out with Dr. Mark Yarborough, who's the new president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Tidings of Comfort and Joy, in which he has some readings. So I thought I'd share some of that with you. And since we are lighting an Advent candle, we're talking about Advent and all the rest. The few of you that will be here that aren't involved with Gift of Christmas, that's what we're going to do next Sunday right here. 
I saw smiles on the people that I know are indeed going to be up to their eyebrows and all the activity. But let's, if we can, see if I can answer this question. I've only got a few minutes, but a lot of people say, what about this decision that might come down from the Supreme Court on the issue of abortion? Let me give you a little bit of history real quickly. You go all the way back to 1973. This was the decision that was written by Harry Blackman, um, Roe versus Wade, Doe versus Bolton. Now, it's interesting that Jane Roe, we know her, Norma McCorvey, she, although was the plaintiff, she later became first a Christian, baptized by Flip Benham, and pro-life. Now, we interviewed her once. Now, on a few issues, I mean, she was a young Christian, so she wasn't all Orthodox, but still, you know, it's interesting that Jane Roe actually became pro-life, and Mary Doe also became pro-life. So both of the plaintiffs, interestingly enough, over time, changed their view. But nevertheless, we have this decision, which argued essentially that uh, there could be maybe a compelling state interest to regulate abortion in the second and third trimester, but that there was not, it would be unconstitutional to have laws against abortion related to the first trimester. So it essentially overturned all sorts of different state laws that banned abortion. And of course, the abortion rate went up rather dramatically. In 1992, it looked like the Supreme Court might consider overturning Roe versus Wade, my prediction is, is that if Judge Robert Bork had been confirmed by the United States Senate, they might have. But instead, uh, Planned Parenthood versus Casey was a case in which they sort of reaffirmed that and then talked about this idea that you could maybe have a compelling state interest after viability, which was a disaster if you think about it, because viability has changed dramatically because of its advances in neonatology. I've got an article right now of this premature baby that was born so early that it leaves and ruins the idea of viability because of all these advances in neonatology. I think I might write a commentary on it. But anyway, that brings us up to now this case that was argued before the Supreme Court December 1st. It's called the Gestational Age Act. And the lawsuit that surfaced out of that is called Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization. It was passed by the Mississippi legislature, signed by the governor, and it would ban abortion after the first 15 weeks. Now, the current decisions essentially uh, say that you could have a compelling interest to ban abortion or limit abortion after 24 weeks. So you can see we have a real difference between 24 weeks and 15 weeks. But that is the case that went before the Supreme Court, which was argued uh, by the Solicitor General from Massachusetts, uh, from Mississippi, excuse me, and likely we won't hear the decision till June. What might happen? Let's think it through. This is the arguing before the case. There's the Solicitor General, and these are the nine members of the Supreme Court. And we can now begin to figure out how they might vote. I suggest right now that what we have in the court are three sets of three. First is we have three liberal justices. That would be Justices Stephen Breyer, Elena Kagan, 
and Sonia Sotomayor. They are so liberal that it's clear that they would vote against this law. Many times we know how they would vote even before the oral arguments. But they have been the consistent votes. As one of the guests on my program said on Friday, uh, Democrats are never surprised by how the justices vote when Democrats put them into office. Republicans are often surprised by some of the things that happen there. Then you have the conservative justices, and that certainly would be Justices Clarence Thomas, who's the oldest on the court, and Samuel Alito. Some people might put Amy Coney Barrett in that category, others might not. But I think on the issue of abortion, it seems pretty clear to me in terms it's so funny. At one point, the Solicitor General from the United States that was arguing against said, you know, one of the reasons we need abortion is because it frees women to pursue their careers. Looking at Amy Coney Barrett, who has, what is it, five children and two adopted children who's sitting on the court. I mean, <laughs> I mean I'm surprised she didn't just laugh out loud. But anyway, that's that, where we are there. The real question always is, um, the Supreme Court decision and the Constitution is whatever just, uh, Chief Justice John Roberts says it is, because he can swing back and forth a little bit. And you might put in there Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh. Well, with nine, you need four to take a case. You need five to win. You have three for sure that are going to probably agree with the constitutionality, we believe, of the Mississippi law. You only need two more. They could be Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, even if Justice, Gors uh, Justice John Roberts wants to do something else. But it gives you a sense of what could happen. What are the possibilities? I've never seen anybody write this, so this is me. So, again, you know, I'm not a lawyer. Don't play a lawyer, although I do have constitutional background in graduate school. But here are my three options. The Supreme Court could rule that the Mississippi law is unconstitutional. A possibility a little less likely in light of hearing the oral arguments, but a possibility. The second, and this could come from somebody like Chief Justice John Roberts, that the Supreme Court could rule that the Mississippi law is constitutional, meaning that some states could have more significant limits before viability, but not overturn Roe versus Wade. The Solicitor General from Mississippi actually said, you know, we're not here to challenge Roe, although I think they were, but that's what they said. So you could come up with kind of split the difference by saying, well, we'll declare the law constitutional, but we won't have anything to say about Roe versus Wade. But I think... Listening to oral arguments, and Clarence Thomas, the justice, uh, longest on the court, has said, and he warns people, don't try to read the tea leaves from what people say during the oral arguments, because we've been wrong more than we've been right. But still, a lot of people think that, indeed, it's possible the Supreme Court could rule that the Mississippi law is constitutional and overturn the previous rulings of Planned Parenthood and NARAL that were in Roe versus Wade and Planned Parenthood versus Casey. And that would be a very different kind of world, because what would that mean? It would mean that no federal ruling now is in effect, and the issue of abortion would then revert back to the states, what existed before 1973. And you would have some states, like California and New York, that would have very liberal abortion laws. You'd have other states, like Mississippi and Texas, that would have more restrictive ones. What would that look like? Well, we don't have to guess, because we have the Texas heartbeat law right here in the state of Texas. Let me tell you that story. The heartbeat bill was passed by the Texas House and the Senate, and the bill was signed into law by Governor Greg Abbott on May 19th. 
The law went into effect September 1st, but every other heartbeat law, of which is about a half a dozen or so, have always immediately been struck down. Either there was an injunction issued against them or they were declared unconstitutional. This one was not. Why? Well, it turns out that uh, the legislature came up with a more creative idea. And that is, you don't have the state enforcing this. You actually have individuals threatening to sue an abortionist if, indeed, somebody gets an abortion after um, a heartbeat is detected, after the sixth week. The problem with that is, again, I don't want to sound too technical here, the issue of standing. And so, as a result, standing would suggest that you can't sue the state because the state doesn't enforce the law. And so it's put everything in kind of a legal uh, limbo for the moment. And so it means that you could not technically in Texas have an abortion after six weeks. Sometimes a heartbeat is detected after five weeks. And you can see this is even more significantly restrictive than the Mississippi law. Now, the argument that was made right now before the Supreme Court by the liberals is uh, stare decisis. Okay, got to have at least one Latin term, right? Stare decisis, that is, that the precedent should continue on, the precedent of Roe versus Wade. It's interesting, they didn't even try to defend Roe versus Wade. They just simply said, well, it's settled law. And, of course, the Solicitor General from Mississippi said, well, yeah, but we had Plessy versus Ferguson, separate but eagle, but we overturned that. We had Dred Scott on slavery. We overturned that. We have Karamatsu, which was about having uh, Japanese intern camps. We overturned that. So if indeed we did overturn this, then it would look very much like the heartbeat law that we have in the state of Texas right now, which is actually saving babies. When you look at what is happening right now, it came into effect on September 1st. What's been the impact? The best estimates are 14,366 lives as of Friday night when I checked it. Do laws make a difference? Yes, they do. Abortion-minded women that we're going to get an abortion, now are showing up at the Pregnancy Resource Center. They're showing up uh, at various other pregnancy centers around the state of Texas. Some are going out of state to get their abortions, but that is the case. And since we're running a little tight on time, let me just simply give you some action steps. But the first one is, if this doesn't cause you to want to pray for the justices of the Supreme Court, I think that is the case. I think we have five votes, but do they, two or three of them get peeled off? We don't know, but it's interesting. Pray for these uh, extended opportunities. Every pregnancy center I'm aware of in the state of Texas right now has more client load than they've ever had before. And that's good news, isn't it? And so pray for them. Pray for the pregnant women who believe that abortion is their only option and now might, at least in the state of Texas, consider that differently. I would encourage you to support the Prestonwood Pregnancy Center. Uh, Pregnancy Resource Center, what a great ministry, and I thank Pastor Graham for implementing that years ago. We also have the Chosen Ministry, because now, I've been talking with uh, Michael Perrin, they want to gear up more for the issue of adoption, because indeed some of these abortion-minded women say, I don't want to abort my baby, but I can't carry this baby. Well, I can carry it maybe to term, but I can't care for this baby any longer, and so adoption is going to be important. And I might encourage you to just pray for the pro-life members of the Texas legislature, many of whom are members of this church, are the ones that drafted that law in the first place. 14,000 babies. 
maybe a few years from now we'll have a chance to do interviews with those babies that said, I was destined for abortion, but because we passed the Texas heartbeat law, they saved my life. Parker?